Well, guys, um, this is, uh, it's, a, it's a big day uh, for me, for my family, for Andrea and our kids. Um, you know, it's uh, not like I've not been anticipating this day for a long time. In fact, uh, I was joking this morning, I, I gave my 100-day notice. So uh, it's been kind of a slow um, arrival to this point here, but, but nevertheless, here we are. And, um, and it's with a mixture of of excitement for what we clearly feel that God's calling us to, but it's also this sense of sadness. We, we've been part of the table community before the table existed, as, as we were dreaming about what the table would be, as we were talking about that, um, and anticipating its arrival, and through its uh, ebbs and flows, uh, we've been part of that. We've been sitting in that pew right there. Um, and so, even to be talking about uh, leaving and departing, departing. you know, every time you start something new, it means that you're ending something, and for us, it means ending this, this uh, regular fellowship with this, uh, this body, this, uh, this community that, that, that we really call our own, um, and so with that, I just, uh, I just want to say thank you to all of you uh, who've uh, just been part of our lives uh, throughout that experience. Some of you we know really well, and some we don't know as well, but we know all your faces, and, and so we just feel that this is, this is important. We're, um, we're not saying goodbye, we're just saying see you later. Uh, we, we intend to come back um, periodically, and hopefully you'll, you'll have us uh, when, when we do. Um, I think before I start, I'm going to get a glass of water here, because I don't think I'm going to make it very far without it. So with that, let's, uh, let's get started. Um, you know, probably one of the more controversial uh, aspects of foreign policy is this whole idea of regime change. We, talk, we hear about regime change a lot in the news. Uh, when we talk about regime change, uh, generally what we mean by this is that it's the replacement of one government regime for another. And I've been thinking a lot about that lately, especially in these days as I'm preparing to uh, step away from my role as missions pastor here at CPC and, and heading to work with an organization that, that operates in a context where regime change is on most people's minds all the time. Uh, I'm from the Democratic Republic of Congo, and for uh, nearly the entire 60 years that that country has been independent, regime change has been the subtext of its very existence. Now, every four or eight years in this country, we were confronted with a, a deeply felt human truth. We love a champion. We love a champion, that, that person who has the insight to pinpoint where our weaknesses are, where our vulnerabilities are, and, and who comes and promises uh, radical change that will, that will replace our weakness with power. Now, of course, we don't call it regime change in our setting. We call it a change of administration. But whether it's by revolution or by election, the principle is still the same. And, and you hear it from the left and you hear it from the right. They say the same thing. It's, you know, I feel your pain. I know what you're going through. You're weak now. You're, you're economically marginalized. You're, you're, you're educationally short Shrifted. You're, you're culturally silenced, but I, I'm the champion who will take you from weakness to power, from weakness to strength. And while history is, is peppered with, with uh, 
examples here and there of compassionate, altruistic champions of the weak. If we're honest, we know that even they are never powerful enough to fully execute their vision. They face all kinds of limitations within and without. And sadly, more often than not, our history books are filled to capacity with an avalanche of sinister and deceitful champions who who exploit the weak for their own gain. I mean, you name it, Hitler, Lenin, Kim Jong-il, Bashar al-Assad. I'm sure you could come up with your own names to fill this list. And sadly, the story of of deceit and empty promises is is as old as humanity itself. When, When long ago, a powerful voice whispered to our first parents, you're weak now. You're creationally marginalized. You're you're intellectually blinded. You've been lied to. But I, I am the one. I'm your champion who will take you from weakness to strength. And our first parents traded a father for a despot, a god for a tyrant. And so the regime of Satan was born, a regime where, where all of humanity wasn't made more powerful, but, but actually fell from power into a, a very profound and deep weakness, a weakness of war within ourselves, a weakness of war amongst ourselves with the very God who created us, which only highlighted all the more a desperate need that we have for a champion, a true champion, a champion who would put an end to this destructive regime, a God who in his grace has given us such a champion, a champion who's powerful enough to to execute the vision of his regime, not of Satan's regime, a champion who is not after his own power, but empowering the weak. Jesus brought humanity's greatest regime change. It's a regime that's effectively moves humanity from weakness to power, a regime in in which weakness and power have been kind of turned upside down, inverted. You know, when my boys, I was telling this story this weekend, when my boys were were little, uh, we used to to wrestle around a lot on the carpet, you know. Um, I don't even remember uh, how old they were. I think two or four years old, you know, that kind of thing. And, And, you know, the crazy part about that is and I still feel bad about this till this day, but you know, as they're sitting there gritting their teeth, pushing with all their might, I start to taunt them. You know, and I'd, I'd say something like, well, you know, guys, whenever you're ready, just let me know. You know, you start pushing whenever you're ready, and you know, they're just like <laughs> sweating and pushing it, and, and then finally, kind of with a little bit of a smile and relish, you know, I just kind of like push their, their little tiny hands onto the table. I know some of you are thinking, what kind of a father are you anyway? <laughs> People like you don't deserve to have kids, I know. But this picture is a picture of us. We were gritting our teeth, pushing against this demonic oppression, if you will, hatred within, violence without, and and the fear of death. But the arm of, of the enemy just kept pushing back, exploiting, taunting our human weakness, our sin, because under him, we were just too weak. But now, imagine, if you will, with me, Imagine my kids, if they had a lifeline to, to Arnold Schwarzenegger, not, not today's Arnold Schwarzenegger, but, but, you know, 1980s Conan the Barbarian Arnold Schwarzenegger. And see, I'm pretty sure that I would lose in this particular battle here. Well, likewise, um, <laughs> yes, that's, that's Arnold. Um, so that, you know, we were no longer, you know, crushed under Satan's strength, 
God himself gave us a lifeline in a truest sense in Jesus Christ to push back against and topple the enemy's regime, to take us from power to weakness. So that's all setting up for this text here that we have in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, if you have your pew Bibles, chapter 20, uh, 19, verses 28 through 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say to them, the Lord needs it. So those uh, who, went, were, uh, who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying this colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. I've never, this never worked for me when I've tried to steal something, by the way. So they brought it to Jesus. They threw their coats on the colt and, he, uh, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread the cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice for all of the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And what did Jesus say? Jesus says, I tell you what, if they keep quiet, these very stones will cry out. Now, I think it's always helpful to have context. And so I'm going to give a little bit of context here. On Palm Sunday, that day that we're commemorating there, Jesus enters into Jerusalem as, as this triumphant king. And, and he is a king, but he's not an ordinary king because, because his kingdom isn't like anything that anybody had ever seen before. Now, they, they'd read the stories of, of the Messiah, and they'd anticipated this. And so, so this was something that, that they were hoping for and, and anticipating. And so as folks, you know, as far as they could tell, this was, this was that, that day that they'd been praying for. They, they'd been under the, the oppression, the boot of the Roman Empire. Um, they had reduced to nothing but this puppet state. They didn't have a king because the Romans wouldn't let them have a king. They could still appoint a high priest, but the Romans said, we have to approve whoever you choose. And, and to make sure that your high priest never gets any crazy ideas about trying to lead a revolt and, and creating a Jewish state, we're going to keep the ceremonial robes of your priest locked up in our guard towers. So we'll let you have them for Passover, for any other holy uh, days, only if you behave. And in case uh, people come to this temple and have these, these crazy ideas, we've, just, we've decided to build this gigantic fortress called the Antonia. And this fortress was named after Mark Antony. And they built it right next to the, to the temple itself, right smack at the heart of their nation, right up next to the most precious building that they had, the structure that means the most to them. And so now that the temple itself would fall under that dark, long shadow of this fortress. You had raw, unfiltered, unvarnished power, a show of power. 
Now, Passover wasn't just this thing that, that Jews lived, who lived in Jerusalem did. It would have brought 200 to 300,000 extra pilgrims from all over to converge on the city. And many of these people who, who would travel all this way were what we call zealots. And what a zealot would be today is, is what we would call a, an extremist, a radical, a, a militant, a, a fanatic. You get the idea, right? And all it would take was just a, a little spark to set the whole city ablaze. They were sitting on political dynamite, and every spare room would have been filled to the, to the gills uh, for anywhere from a, within a close walk of the city. And, and this was, the, again, remember, this was the biggest celebration, the biggest Jewish holiday of the year. And so the, the, the Pharisees, they, they, they see all of this happening, right? I mean, they've been opposing Jesus all along, but they see this happening, and this is really, really not a good time, you know. And so they're feeling a little bit stressed out. Uh, they want him to, to turn down the volume. They want him to, to, to reel it back in. They, they want him to cool his jets. They, they, they want him to chill. And, and their concern is perfectly understandable. It's, it's reasonable. Things in Rome were a little bit on edge at that time there, and the last thing that they needed was some sort of a riot, uh, some kind of an excuse for Rome to turn up the heat on the city especially at a time of Passover. Passover was this, this celebration of their freedom from the oppressive enslavement of the Egyptians. So can you imagine this scenario now? They, they, they're celebrating their, their freedom from oppression of the Egyptians, and now here they are under the oppression of Rome. You think that the Roman uh, occupiers had, had an idea what was going on? Do you think that they, they knew what they were gathering to celebrate? They might have had an idea. Now we have this, this impromptu hero's parade. And the Pharisees tell Jesus, Jesus, shh, be quiet. Tell your disciples to be quiet or else they'll get us all killed. I mean, this is not a good thing. This march, you see, it was, it was just like, pregnant with, with expectation, with anticipation. Jesus is on a collision course there that can't be stopped. He's on a trajectory that can't be slowed down. Nothing can stop the processional to the cross. This, this march towards the cross was, was a march towards the end of Satan's exalted place of power over humanity. On the cross, Jesus was about to do what no one else was able to do. He would decisively, he would single-handedly deal a death blow to Satan's regime on the cross. That's where he's headed in this message, to Jerusalem, to the cross. And it would be on that cross that Jesus faced Satan's most powerful weapon against humanity, death itself. Not just death of the body, but death of our very being and being cut off from God. But Jesus wrenched death from Satan's grip, from his power, by himself conquering death, by, by raising, rising from the dead. Now, this image that, that captures this is, would be, you know, in that uh, analogy of my kids in the wrestling match, it would be me, you know, my kids tapping out, you know, in the arm wrestling match, an arm wrestling match that they could never win. And then Arnold comes in and boom, you know, he slams my hand to the ground. Now, this is a, an image that, that's a, a true image, but, but it's a truth that's not being fully highlighted in this particular passage here. Because Jesus, who is our champion, says, you're trying to stop something, but you're trying to stop something that can't be stopped. 
He says, I, I tell you, if, if my disciples were to keep quiet, if my disciples were not to speak up, these very stones would cry out. And I imagine him pointing to those very ancestral stones, those ancient stones. And as he does this, pointing to those stones, I think he's pointing straight towards the most explosive subject of all, the subject of the resurrection. He's talking about the dead coming back to life. He's talking about hosannas from the grave. He's talking about the undoing of all that is wrong and broken and tragic in this world. There are just some things, Jesus says, that just can't be kept quiet. There are just some realities that just are too good to keep in. Now, for years and years in his ministry, if you, if you read the, the Gospels, then you might have noticed this pattern. For years and years, as, as Jesus would uh, go about his ministry, um, as he would go around and, and heal somebody or he would proclaim hope to someone, he would tell them, now, I want you to go home and don't tell anybody what happened. Now, I've never understood that. I mean, it's always been a puzzle to me why, why he would say that. I mean, if I were, if I were in charge, if I were running his, his uh, marketing campaign, his PR campaign, I'd tell him he was doing it all wrong. I'd say, Jesus, no, you need, you need a Twitter account, first of all, you know, so that people know what you're thinking, what you're doing, what you're about. You don't need to be obnoxious about it, but, you know, you just need to do things a little bit differently. Certainly, if, if I were running a presidential campaign or, or let alone a, a messianic campaign. But no, Jesus walks around, and he doesn't want to draw attention to himself and it's what the scholars call the messianic secret. And so Jesus tries to do as much as he can under the radar as he ministers. And as he does this, there comes a point where everything changes. There comes this point where everything shifts. There's this divine appointment that Jesus has in Jerusalem, this divine appointment that he has in the cross. And now, as, as Jesus is on this unstoppable journey towards the cross, Jesus says, he says, you know what? It's time to crank up the volume. He says, for nobody, nobody can stop God's advance. No one can, can silence heaven's invasion song. So what does this mean for us? Well, first it means this. It means that you can change earthly regimes all you want, but still be stuck in the regime of the enemy. In other words, uh, fighting simply on the plane of steering our political regime to the left or to the right will never go far enough. Why? Because, because none of us, none of this will strike at, at the heart of Satan's regime. The only champion that will bring you out of Satan's regime where you are weak in sin, where you're headed toward death, is Jesus. But let me also say what this is not saying. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to, to labor on the plane of earthly regimes, that we shouldn't struggle for change here and now. Jesus' regime doesn't simply apply to the so-called spiritual things. As uh, theologian N.T. Wright says, Jesus' task was not simply to teach people a new way of life, not simply to offer a new depth of spirituality, not simply to enable them to go to heaven after death. Jesus' task was to defeat Satan, break his power, win the decisive victory which would open up the way to God's new creation, in which evil and even death itself would be banished. 
Um, I think some of you know that I'll be leaving CPC to join an organization called Congo Initiative. Um, and as I do this, as I, as I start this work um, of transformative change in Congo, or I should say as I join this work, um, I realize that I'm heading into a context that seems impossible, that seems hopeless, intractable, some would even say a lost cause. And I'm not naive about it, but I do believe that God is in this. I've, and I believe this because, because I've witnessed in the context of utter weakness what happens when the weak of this world confound the strong and the powerful, not by might, not by power, but by the spirit, by the power and the resources of our champion. A South African woman, an older woman, uh, stood in this emotionally charged, packed courtroom, and she listened as a group of white police officers testified, admitting under oath the atrocities that they'd committed in the name of apartheid. Officer Vanderbrook acknowledged his responsibility in the death of her son. Along with others, he had shot her 18-year-old son at point-blank range. And then as he and his colleagues partied while they burned his body, turning it over and over until the fire uh, reduced his body to ashes. Eight years later, Vanderbrook arrived at her home and pulled her husband out of the house, grabbed him. A few hours later, shortly after midnight, he came and fetched her, and he went to the wood pile where her husband lay bound, and, and she was forced to watch as they doused gasoline on him and lit his body on fire as well. The last words that she heard him say were, forgive them. Now, years later, Vanderbrook is standing there before her in this courtroom, waiting for judgment. South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission asked her what she wanted out of this. And this is what she said. She says, I want Mr. Vanderbrook to take me to the place where they burned my husband's body. I'd like to gather up his ashes and give him a decent burial. Second, Mr. Vanderbrook took all my family away, and I still have a lot of love to give. And so twice a month, I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to come to my home in the township and to spend a day with me so that I can be a mother to him. Third, I'd like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that he's forgiven by God and, and that I forgive him also. And I'd like someone to lead me to where he is sitting so that I can embrace him and let him know that my forgiveness is real. As this older woman is led across the courtroom, Vanderbrook collapses, overwhelmed, he faints. Someone begins singing Amazing Grace in the back of the courtroom. Gradually, everybody joins in and sings. You see, this woman understood what this world fails to understand, that true regime change doesn't happen through earthly might, that true regime change does not occur through carefully orchestrated battle plans. True regime change isn't engineered in smoke-filled rooms behind closed doors. True regime change is accomplished once and for all through the act of Christ being crucified, Christ dying, and more importantly, Christ being raised from the dead. This woman understood the implications for herself, for the whole world, that to be, that to be reconciled with God is to be reconciled 
to each other and to be free indeed. So the next time that someone tells you to, to hold it in, next time someone tells you to tone it down, the next time someone tells you to, to play it safe and to not take risks for Christ, next time someone tells you at school or in your neighborhood or at work or in your community that they don't want you to upset the careful political balance and tension that they have there, you need to remind yourself. You need to remind yourself that there are moments when there are truths that are just too good to be quiet. That the regime change is not optional, it's inevitable. That there are some victories that just have to be celebrated. And at the end, at the center of all of this, as Paul reminds us, if Christ has not been raised then we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But according to the gospel of Luke, according to the message of Jesus, this isn't just a Palm Sunday message. It's an Easter message. It's all about Easter. It's all about grace. It's all about God's amazing grace. That amazing grace that has the power to turn tables on their head. A power full, amazing, sweet, amazing grace that has the power to save wretches like me and wretches like you and, and all of those who feel like they are too far gone to be reachable and redeemable. That grace that relieves our worst fears, that, that grace that secures our hope, that grace that even 10,000 years from now will shine as bright as the sun. They couldn't hold Jesus back from the tomb, no matter how much human effort they had. There was nothing that was able to stop God's final resurrection power. The eternal song of the first Palm Sunday, when, when they shouted their hosannas, was more appropriate than they could have ever imagined. When they said hosanna, which means God save us, God save us, they didn't really know the full extent of what they were praying, for nothing in all creation could fully anticipate, yet will ever be able to ultimately silence the shouts of a new day in Christ. Friends, there are moments when you can choose to join in that great, great song of salvation. And when you do, let no one tell you to be quiet. God's grace is unmerited, undeserved, it's not something that we, that we muster up. It's something that God is given to us freely. So I invite you, as we prepare for, for communion, to, to sing with me those, those timeless words. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. <coughs> <coughs> Sing as the sun.
We'd know less days Sing God's praise Than when we'd first begun No one understood the concept of amazing grace until Jesus demonstrated what amazing grace means. And he demonstrated it most tangibly by giving of himself, gathering his disciples in that upper room, looking at them, those three years that he spent with them, all kind of like a movie reel, coming back to them as his words began to make sense. It was on that night in which Jesus was betrayed that he broke bread, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in that same way, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. It's a change of regimes. The old is gone, the new has come. The new regime is the regime that welcomes all around the table in the kingdom of God. Paul reminds us that as often as we do this, as often as we break the bread and drink from the cup, we proclaim that victory over the old regime, that inauguration into the new. God, we thank you for your regime change a regime change that that is unlike any regime change we know because it is one that promotes love, grace, weakness over power, humility over strength. In Jesus' name, amen.